0: Welcome to Close to the Heart Live on ON TV. We certainly appreciate you tuning in. This is something almost a year in the making. And it's been a long time. We've all been through a lot, but we are resuming some sort of normalcy. And this was our first step. And I wanted a very special guest to have on here on my 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 return episode here on, on ON TV, and I couldn't think of anybody better than the man that, that is, is with me here tonight. Um, you know, when you hear the words professional wrestling, if you are not a fan, the, you automatically assume that it's fake, which is a really bad four-letter word in, in, in our business. But my my guest here tonight is anything but. In, in fact, he's more real than, than anything, really. Um, to wrestling fans, he's known as Aaron Orion, one of the brightest stars in all of the independent wrestling scene in the state of Michigan and around the entire tri-state area. But Aaron Richard, is is the man that is going to join me here tonight and he has a very inspiring story from his his struggles his battles both in the ring and outside the ring. So please welcome Aaron Richard, also known as Aaron Orion. Aaron, man, it's great to see you. It's been a really long time since you and I have seen each other face to face. How's things?
1: Everything's great. I appreciate you having me and I am very excited to be here.
0: I am too, man. I, you know, we, we talked about this and um, I got with with the fine folks here at ON TV and I said you know I want to do our our first show and I want it big right and I wanted somebody to come on here and tell a very you know inspirational story you have that story and it's not just what you've done in the ring but it's also what you've done outside of the ring now you know full full, you know to tell the whole story Um. I've had the privilege. Now you are one of the bigger names in in the business right now on an independent level. Now um, I've had the privilege of watching you from day one, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll we will we will cross that bridge here in a little bit. But kind of talk me through, Aaron. You know where what your childhood was like, where you grew up from. You know what's what did you, what was your childhood like? Um. In the early
1: years, so I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. Um, in the early years, it was just me, my mom, my dad, my two brothers. We lived like in a, a one-bedroom house, uh, and me and my brothers we all slept on a hide a bed together for I would say the first like five or six years of the life that I can remember. Um, and then like, uh, not to get down already, but uh, my my parents somewhere around the age of like six or seven became like not six or seven for them obviously six or seven to us and my brothers they came like severe alcoholics and from there like a lot of the like a lot of the memories that I have are like bad like I don't have a a ton of like great memories of being like a like a like a toddler to being like a a preteen with my family other than just me and my brothers kind of like sticking it out and sticking together and then um You know meeting friends from school and they kind of became my family because my home life was like
0: In shambles. Yeah, like not great. Sure It's it's amazing to me that as you're laying this out now you know you when you and I first met you were what 15 15 and You know you you could see right right out of the gate that there was something special about you just because of the way you presented yourself I appreciate that. and you know over the course of the years I've gotten to know you more on a personal level than just you know you came in as talent you wanted to learn how to wrestle with the MWO and we'll, we'll get there but the one thing that that stuck out to me was how you presented yourself and you know we didn't go into a lot of your childhood back then but as you're laying this out I can I can totally understand and have a better appreciation of why you presented yourself or how you presented yourself in the way that that you did because a lot of people man, especially in in the Flint area and it's not to talk you know bad about about the area but I mean it is what it is right oh yeah um, you know, a lot of people a lot of kids you know they have that kind of home environment, and they adopt, for the lack of a better term, that kind of lifestyle, and they do nothing with their lives. You see it on the news, you hear it on TV. You see, you know, you hear about it all, you know, all the time. You rose above that at a very early age, and you know, with you know, with your brothers and and with your friends, and you know, knowing you the way I do, I know how close you are with your friends. You have a very very strong core group of friends, right? So, um, as as you were growing up, did you have aspirations in sports? Were you into baseball, football, or anything like that? Like, my brothers are, they were amazing baseball
1: players. And for whatever reason, it might just be like the middle child syndrome. Like, I, like, rebelled against it. Like, I wanted nothing to do with sports. I just wanted to sit in my room, you know, play my Nintendo 64, and just like I think it was like my imagination was like so wild and we would write so, like me and my friends we'd write stories or we would just walk around the neighborhood and like make up like movie ideas to each other or um sit and play games and just just kind of it was just just a lot of like paling around that we did uh there was never like and I always look back on it and I'm sad because I didn't do it but also I don't know where I'd be if I would have done it but like, I, I did wrestling for one year in junior high, and I hated it. Like, yeah. I hated it so much, and I couldn't wait for the season to be over. And I went, like, six and four, and, you know, you know, I wasn't, like, great at it by any means, and, like, uh, I couldn't wait for it to be done. And then, like, I, I, I thought I wanted to do wrestling because I wanted to be a professional wrestler. Obviously, like, uh, school wrestling or like, amateur wrestling is way different, but I was like, man, that would give me, like, a good base, is what like the like the reasonable side of my brain said. But then the second I had to do any work, I was like, oh, this sucks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you got into amateur wrestling um, and you kind of touched on it. At, at what point did professional wrestling come, come across your radar? Uh, there's like two different
1: like things. Like I remember being at my grandma's house and she was like a big wrestling fan. Um, Like, wrestling that predates anything that I've ever really been, like, truly interested in. Like, I I can appreciate all wrestling, but, like, the late 80s, early 90s, I remember, like, being at my grandma's house, and she was watching a match, and it was, like, Jake the Snake versus somebody, and he, like, threw the snake into the ring, and, you know, all that awesome stuff that would happen in his, like, his era of wrestling. And I remember, like, oh, that's cool, and it was just kind of nice to sit there with my grandma, and she was super into it, and I was just, like, laying on the floor, and I was like, man, that's, that's cool. And then it never really like stayed with me. It kind of went away. And then one day I was just like flipping through the channels, and I seen it wasn't it wasn't the dumpster match, but it was a part of the feud with the New Age Outlaws and Mick Foley and uh, Terry Funk. Mm-hmm. And that it was like a pile like he hit like uh, someone took a pile driver like through the announce table. And when I seen that, that's when it was like, oh, this is awesome. Like I don't even know what this is. But this is way different than kind of like the more cartoonish, um, I don't know, like uh, the that early 90s, late 80s style. And it was just like gritty and grimy and they were like, they look like they're beating the crap out of each other. And for whatever reason, that that stuck with me. So then I started kind of flipping around and then I found myself watching like the cruiserweights. And that's what really like dug, it, like that's when wrestling like dug its hooks in. Because... Mm-hmm. To see these guys flipping around and doing dives out of the ring and all this crazy stuff, that's what got me. Like, So then I was just like, I seen like two different sides of wrestling that hooked me into a way I was like, man, I got to see this every single week. I got to, like, I have to be a part of this. And from then on out, it was just like, it was like religion to me and my brothers and my mom to, to make sure we were watching like every every monday night and every nitro every raw and then my uncle uh don't call the police but he would bring over that little black box where he, uh, <laughs> where yeah. you could stream the paper and not P- even right. stream it but you know you plug it in and you can watch the pay-per-views and he would just he would bring over that black box and he would just be like make sure you record it because i'm going to come pick up the the vhs before raw starts tonight so i'm up to date and he would let us watch the pay-per-views live and then he would pick them up in the morning and and so he could
0: watch them and then we were just like we we watched every single show You came in, you, we're talking about the Attitude Era, like the height of the Attitude Era, when the business had never been hotter. Right. Um, You know, you're you're talking about, like, the whole Foley funk and the New Age Outlaws, that is, you know, 98. It was a little bit before that. Like, it was like a...
1: Because ninety eight was like stone cold, and this was kind of still like DX had just kind of started, so it was like probably like, like late ninety six or ninety seven ish. Okay, um, because I remember like we were we were deep 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 in there. Sure. Like I remember like in, by ninety eight we were like we were so hooked. Like I remember for whatever reason we ended up at like a. Uh, like an indie car race at like the michigan speedway or something and they were selling like knockoff stone cold shirts and i was like i gotta have one i'm like begging my mom for it and stuff and she was like no shut up and then um we didn't there's no way we had the money for it but like they were selling you know stone cold shirts and then goldberg shirts and then um so by that time we were like it had became like our life or at least my life and my brothers like enjoyed it but like for me it was just like yeah, like It was kind of like the perfect escape from like our lives like it was just like everything that that wrestling was was like everything that i felt like i wasn't like i wasn't strong i wasn't confident i wasn't like i wasn't athletic i wasn't i wasn't any of those things and it was just like that's the person i want to be like road dog and billy gunn granted they're completely two different people when it comes to like their styles and their ability but they were like the perfect mesh of like two guys that i wanted to be like have like the charismatic, like, uh, you know, mic work and just like the swag that Road Dog had, and then just like the athletic ability that Billy Gunn has. And like, I was like, I would dream about that. Like, I would literally have dreams that I was like teaming up with Billy Gunn. And like, I had like the tights on with the lips on it and stuff. Like, it's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> oh, man. See, I, when, whenever I talk, Wrestling with with somebody not necessarily anybody that's in the business, but just a fan of it I'm always curious as to What era was it that? You were introduced to the business and who was it that that stood out to you? People my age, you know, we grew up in in the 80s I mean the Hulkamania boom was was the thing you know that and he's the guy that that got me hooked for you well, you know we're talking about the the onslaught of the attitude era. Your Austins, DX on the WCW side. You had Goldberg and the NWO, you know, n- the New World Order. Um, so it's fascinating when when you're laying this out that it's Road dog and Billy Gunn because you don't hear those two guys' yeah. names, you know, met, mentioned very very often in, in, in terms of these are the guys that I was drawn to and. You, I mean, it was beautifully put because you're absolutely right. It, it was, you had Road Dog had his skill set. You had, you know, Billy Gunn who with his skill set, but it meshed perfectly. Right. It was a perfect tag team. Well, I think that with like with Road Dog too, it was just like, I felt like I could be that. Mm-hmm. You know, like with
1: Billy Gunn, he's a freak athlete, sure, and he's just like a monster. He's like six foot four, and he's just jacked. But like Road Dog, just looks like a guy, right? And but then you know he was in Desert Storm, and he's out there, and he has like his, you know, his uh, braids, and he has just like a shirt and and pants on, and he's just he's so confident, and he's just like he has so much like swag to him. But he just looks like a guy, and I was like, I like, I just look like a guy, like, and it, so it's like, for someone who never had any like athletic aspirations, that was like what, like it, it attracted me so much more because I was like, man, I could be Road Dog, like I could be like that.
0: So you you have a legitimate passion for professional wrestling. Now, before we get into your journey into the business, when you relayed that. At school, or, or or what have you, because it was right along the time that the business was picking up, and it was all over pop culture. It was all over mainstream media. Um, were you, um, like, for me? Be, and it's a different era. I was picked on terribly as a kid because I was a wrestling fan. You know, it was all the, all that fake crap. Right. You know, did you encounter anything like that, or had 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 the business evolved to the point to where? It was now a cool thing to be a a wrestler. It definitely was,
1: like, cooler. It wasn't like, like, you weren't, you know, boosted into, like, the popular kid table at lunch or anything like that. But it was definitely, like, it wasn't necessarily, like, it was, like, you know, like how you were talking about. It wasn't, like, frowned upon by other kids. You would have kids who would, you know, say, you know, whatever nonsense they're going to say. But, like you also find yourself around and attracting a lot more other wrestling fans. Than and because it was so hot in the time, there's so many more of them. Sure. So then you kind of just find your own little click of just, even if they're just like schoolmates and then, you know, you never see them outside of school, you get there on Monday or on Tuesday or on Monday and you're like, I can't wait to see this tonight. What do you think's going to happen? And then on Tuesday you're like, oh, I can't believe, you know, Vince McMahon Peter pants or whatever, you know, nonsense. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you're out at recess and you're going through the moves that you've seen and you're, you know, trying to powerbomb your buddy and stuff. And then, uh, you know, the security or lunch ladies, whatever, come out and yell at you. Right. Um, but no, it just – it it seemed – I never really remember a lot of flack getting a lot of flack other than just like kids trying to like put you down.
0: Sure. Yeah, that, you know, because that's what happens when any when people don't understand something and they just they chalk it up to oh, it's fake, it's this. No, there's a lot more to it than what you're seeing and you are just, you know, that's the art of, right. of of the business, right? So I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, when you're you're following the product on a weekly basis, you're watching the Raws, the Nitros, the pay-per-views, this is something that you want to do. Yeah. Now, did you have, I mean, did you let it be known that I am going to become a professional wrestler, you know, come hook or crook? Um, and how did the Michigan Wrestling o- Organization come across your radar? So, like, it
1: seemed... Like, you know, we were like wrestling in our backyard on our trampoline or just on the ground and, or like putting a mattress down or just, you know, a bunch of blankets and stuff. And we were doing like what we thought was going to be, you know, the closest thing. But it, it like, in the moment, it seemed so unobtainable. Like it didn't seem like it was something because like if you, if you called around and found a school or something like that, they're like, oh, it's gonna be $1,800, it's gonna be $2,000, it's gonna be $2,500. Right. and there was no way I was going to ever that I was never going to be able to afford that or anything like that. So it's like I knew that it's what I wanted, but I didn't know a way to get it. Mm -hmm. And once we kind of like, you know, we started doing our, you know, matches in the backyard and we would record them and take, you know, uh, I had, you know, I take like the, 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 camcorder uh to school and you know we'd be showing our friends and stuff like all the stuff that we were doing or nonsense and then once that kind of got around uh my older brother's friend tila told you know she came and like found me and she was like hey i know a guy jeff brooks who was a night shift Mm -hmm. and he wrestles for this place called the MWO." and we were just like there's something like here like in you know at the time it was in otisville but right after that like our first show, actual like being like on the roster would have been at Terry's Lounge. <laughs> so it was just like it was like fate came in and brought the MWO close to a, like into a place where we could actually get there because we didn't. You know, like my mom didn't drive. Like everything that we did was basically like revolved around my grandma. Mm-hmm. So like she was the one who basically did everything for us. So she was the one you know take us in a, taking us to Disney World. She was the one taking us to the mall of America or paying for our field trips or anything like that. Like my mom at this point, she was like, she was so sick because she had cirrhosis of the liver because she was an alcoholic and it was basically her, she was just falling apart. My dad was long gone and, um, not dead, but just out of the picture. Out of the picture, sure. And, uh, and although she was super supportive and everything, um, she wasn't a person who was going to be able to put these things together for us um so my grandma was the one who did everything so then it it comes from otisville which isn't that far away from flint we we went out there for one show and like uh it was like me and Adam Sniper riding in the car with a, a couple of guys from the MWO, and Adam's like in the trunk because we wanted to make sure we could fit everybody. And <laughs> um, and we came out and we watched like uh, Sean Cypher do like a shooting star press, and Damon Gray's doing like the turnaround uh, moon salt, and we we're like, this is the craziest thing we've ever seen. We couldn't believe it because it was the first time we were ever seeing wrestling live as well. Okay. So we were 15 years old, and it was the first time being able to be in a ring. And also just seeing a ring in person. It was like, it was just, it was
0: mind-blowing. So you had never been to like a, WD, a WWE show or anything like that? I, I didn't know that. Yep. Interesting. Well, you came in at, I mean, an opportune time. And anybody that follows, you know, our organization, the MWO, knows what a huge part that Terry's Lounge was. We That was our home base. Oh, yeah for like six and a half years or something like that and it was a little dive bar um not on the best side of, of flint but i mean that that was home and uh you know you guys came in to you know it was you it was sniper um a, a, a christopher saint was yep. he with you at that time well he was
1: in lansing he came he was like he was in and out it was because it was basically like could we go pick him up. Mm-hmm. So, like Adam Sniper is the only one who had a car. Could we go get him and then bring him? to the shows cause he was going to school in Lansing at this time. This is like right before eventually he moves in with me. Like, uh, he has some family stuff going on. And eventually my mom was just like, you're going to come live with us and you're going to finish school and then you go out on your own. You'll be a, a human. But like, she was just like, she kind of knew what was going on at his home and kind of like, uh, got the gist of everything. And my mom was just, she was awesome. Like she was like the caretaker to the neighborhood and like even though she was going through so much and she had so much going wrong in her life you know from her health to her marriage um she loved being a part of our lives and she was a lot more like a friend to us than she was like a mom like she was like our authority figure but it was never like um it was never like a helicopter parent situation it was like do these things like go do them mm-hmm. and um uh, so eventually, Saint comes and moves in, and then Donnie Crow. So that was the four of us, and we came and we had like our um, red track suits on, and with our names like uh, drawn in on the back or whatever like that. And we right. thought we were so cool.
0: <laughs> hey, man! Back in that day, it was cool, <laughs> you know. Because and and when when you guys came in, you know, when you guys came in as like one group, um, kind of talk me through because as as the promoter and you're dealing with you know 25 to 30 people you know I didn't have the opportunity to really sit and watch you guys exclusively because I had so many o- right. other things happening um, but I did get I you know the guys that were working with you in, in the ring okay Aaron's ready Adam's ready and Donny's ready you know let's do something with them you know Saints ready. Um, kind of talk me through your first few months in MWO in terms of what you were shown, how you were shown. Because I know a lot of times when we got to Terry's Lounge, because we ran there like every other week, mm-hmm. you know, f- for a long time. Um, we, would, we would show up like 8 in the morning. We would put the ring up and then have, have training until like a half hour before we opened the doors to the public. So who worked with you? When you guys first came in, who were your your biggest, I don't know, in, influences don't really seem right, but, you know, the ones that that were re- really kind of showing you the ropes?
1: Um, Levi Blue. Sure. Is, I always say, you know, to anybody who asks, he was my first trainer. And um, not that I'm, I'm typically nowadays, no one's ever be like, who trained you? Because I've been wrestling for so long, but it's like, yeah, this guy's been around. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, especially when you're new, like, who trained you? Where are you from? Um, so Levi was the first one and he was like the one who like was really interested in making sure we knew the business, like, and obviously you got to go learn moves. You got to learn how to bump for sure. But he was uh, like, um, a lot more instrumental in making sure we understood like how wrestling is supposed to work. Um, with, you know, all the smoke and mirrors and, and, the the behind the scenes and the, um, like the work aspect of it, like treating it like a job. Sure. Um, and then Billy Davidson was uh, a guy who helped us in a ring a lot. Um, and then it was like you just had a lot of guys coming in, like uh, Corvus, um, Jeff Bowdish, and then Nick Zero were guys who were like just had went to training somewhere like a House of Truth or Andrew Darcy's school and they would come in and they would always just kind of like they would go to classes and then come back and like just basically try to like regurgitate the things that they learned like we learned arm drugs this week I'm going to show you how to do them so we'd be in there you know listening to whatever they said and we would do whatever you know whatever that they could remember and just try to give a, us like the best you know let's say like regurgitated version of what they thought was supposed to be happening um and that happened for a long time we i mean i don't remember there's like there's never a time where as soon as the ring was up we weren't in there Mm -hmm. you know even up to like the very last couple months of us being there once the ring was up we were in there and we were messing around we were training or just having fun or you know trying to call matches and just just being in the ring because it was just like like just like we were saying a minute ago this had never happened before Mm -hmm. and i'm 15 years old i might be like 16 by this time but like I'm in a re- like I'm in a real ring and you guys had just got the brand new um monster ring was it? Yeah. Yep. So like you guys had just got like we did a couple of the the um like man-made ring um but relatively soon to being at Terry's Lounge you guys had got like a brand new just the the fanciest of the fancy and you know it's like I would just sit there. Like I just wanted to be in the ring anyway. Like I was like even if the training was done, we would just be like yeah, I just want to be in here because like, these are wrestling ropes. Like, this is the mat. Like, I can't believe that this is happening. It was like a dream.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you guys would go on, you know, you were with us for a long time, a long stretch of time there. And you became among the most popular, well, hated, if you, were, if, if you guys were healed. But you garnered attention. You know, it, it started out very humble meetings, but by, by the time you guys left, you were the marquee players. You know, you were winning titles. You were involved in storylines. But, you know, you guys really progressed at a really quick, you know, rate. And, you know, we would sit back and watch you guys. And, you know, and when Jack Price came, you know, came in, you know, there was a group of you that we would sit back. The the veterans, me, Levi, my brother, uh, Bowdish, you know, to to some degree these guys are going to go somewhere, and there was no doubt in my mind. Now, when that happens, it's a bittersweet thing, right, because you're like, oh, I don't want to lose them, you know, cause right. they, because they, they're such they're such awesome people. Not just what you did in the ring, but what you did in the locker room. You know, you, you always made time for anybody that had a question. If you knew something that s- somebody brand new – was unaware of you would take that time to teach them not talk down to them not to try to show your status and that's one thing about you aaron you have maintained that from day one is this this level of professionalism and there was no doubt in my mind and i knew the day was coming and 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 it did come we you guys were very professional you sat down with me and said we have an opportunity elsewhere who am i going to who am i to say no you can't you know I want you to go and I want you to do exactly what you want to do if this is what makes you happy and you have this opportunity yes I'm sad yes a part of my heart is broken but I'll get over it right I'll and I'm I'm gonna sit on the sidelines and I'm gonna watch you flourish and that's exactly what what has happened Um, you have you've worked with all kinds of great talent name you know big names not so big names Um, You've wrestled for a number of different promotions. You've done amazing things in the ring. Uh, As your friend and as somebody who kind of laid the groundwork for your career, I hate saying it like that because that's not...
1: But it's definitely true. Well, I... I, I've made multiple posts about it every time i know get a little um heavy-hearted about it but without that is kind of same as i was saying before is like there's no without the mwo and without someone like you who would do something like the mwo there's no way that i could have until maybe i was 19 20 years old there's no way that i could have ever my my family or i could have ever afforded and also at the time i might not even like i might not have had the work ethic to be able to go somewhere and save up that much money and be able to do that kind of stuff. So it's like without without the platform you gave us there's a you know a good chance that we wouldn't be where we are or or we wouldn't be at all. Mm-hmm. And I've always like I've always said that and I've like, and I always you know I wouldn't say if I didn't mean it but it's like I've, I've always meant it. Like without this um we might not have ever got to have a piece of the pie and a piece of that dream that led us to um, gaining more success or more fulfillment, fulfillment um, down the line.
0: Well, I, I want to share a story with you. Um, I was, and you know, we're we're skipping over, I, you know, your independent, you know, time, all the different promotions and promoters that you have since worked for. XICW, you know, though the the bigger name promotions, right? Um, I was getting ready for work one night. I'm on I'm on third shift, and I had the TV on. It was a, it was a Monday night, and my wife and my kids were were in bed, and everybody was sleeping. I come out of the bathroom. I was walking down the hall, going into the kitchen, and I just kind of glanced up at 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 the TV, and I had to stop, and I'm like, I didn't see what I just saw. So I come back in, and I hit the rewind button, and there you are, on Monday Night Raw. Talk me through through that. How how did that become a thing? Because here's the thing, Aaron, when 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 I got back to where you were so, solely on the screen, I paused it, and I said an pretty loud, <laughs> to the point to where it woke my family up. And my wife thinking that there was something wrong. She's like, "What's wrong?" Aaron O'Ryan is on Monday Night Raw, and I had a pause where you were on the screen. You were doing the thing with uh, Corbin yep. and Kurt Angle, and uh, I'm like, "Come here, look at this! Look, come me look at this!" It was, dude. I had it was like a proud dad moment. One of my boys. I, you know, you can you can work for a hundred other prom- you know, promotions and promoters, but you will always be one of my boys. One of my boys is on WWE television. How did that whole, whole thing come about? So,
1: we were at a show. It was uh, Saturday, you know, midday. And um, I got a call from a friend. And it was essentially that they were doing a battle royal on Raw in Chicago. And they need a couple trustworthy people who can come fill these spots. And they—I don't know how she had kind of got asked about it, but she was like, "Hey, I know the people," and she um, she called her boyfriend at the time. You know, she told him, "Hey, call these people and tell them that you know this is an opportunity for you guys to come in, and you know, there's a you know a 75 percent chance that you guys are going to be on wrong," um, and we just, I I. Called my work immediately. I was like, hey, I'm not going to be there on Monday. I am doing something else, and I'll you know, i talk about it later. I'm not going to tell... I didn't want to tell anybody. I sure. Tell, you know, I told Jack, um, Jack Price. At the time, I told Jack, and I told... Like, he might have been the only person. And I was just like, dude, this is crazy. I can't believe this. But it seemed like it was too good to be true, because it literally came out of nowhere. It was one day prior. And um, so we get there, and... You know, you have to do tons of paperwork and stuff. There's so much stuff that comes into um, actually getting approved. You have to be there. You have to see their medical staff, and you have to talk to their doctors. You have to um, kind of, like, oh, this is kind of full circle, too. I wouldn't say that we did, like, ring work beforehand, but we had to do stuff, like, kind of mess around a little bit and kind of show them that we were in some way qualified. And Road Dog was our agent for the match. Isn't that something? So, and the the best thing, and I, at least I remember it forever and ever, when finally they, you know, there's like 20 people there. So now, like, my heart's like racing. because so I was like, man, they only need eight people. So I have to hope that I'm one of these eight that they pick, and um, they, they we, you know, we do a little stuff in the ring, and then they're just like, okay, we're going with blah, 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 and they count out eight people. And I'm one of those eight people, and at this point, I'm... I'm so like I just like the butterflies are about to explode out of my stomach and like I was like dude there's no way this is happening and then I'm still thinking like you know something's going to happen they're going to cut the segment they're going to run long on something and we're going to get taken off the show and I was like oh my god this is this is insane um and then sure enough time keeps progressing through the day and now we're standing there talking to Road Dogg and there uh and then uh, Baron Corbin's there and he's just like hey we need you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And we all have, like, stupid names and um, and we're from, like, random countries and all this. You know, this nonsense that obviously you expect out of, you know, WWE and, um, like, just fun stuff that's going to be appealing for kids and stuff like that. And, like, um, they're like, okay, so, you know, you guys are going to get thrown out relatively early. As soon as, you know, Baron Corbin grabs you, you're just going out. But we need one guy to come up last. And Baron Corbin was like, well, how about it be this guy? And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, and he was and I was just like, I'm standing there. I'm trying to be cool. And I'm just trying to be calm. And I'm just like, no way, dude. Like, how is this like all kind of, like, it's just so insane how all this came together. And then uh, Road Dog starts kind of calling the spot. And like, so when you're like on hard cam, he's like, you know, you need to come up in this corner. And this is your moment. So you got to make sure you're in this place at this time so the cameras can pick you up. And if you're not there, they're not going to see you. And they're going to stay on Baron Corbin essentially. Sure. So you got to make sure that you hit this point, which is coming up in that far left corner, because he's going to be like Kurt Angle's on the right side, and he's like on the ground. Corbin just eliminates the last guy, and he's like, you got to make sure you're coming up here, and then take your time and come out this, come out of the corner, and you guys are going to have like a little face off, little thing. And he's just like, this is your moment, and if you, you know, if you mess this up, then you have nothing like the you you know you'll be able to do the you'll be able to watch this forever like this will never go away right this thing regardless if it's you know i'm a, a extra on raw i'm still on raw right. and no one can ever take that away right and um we still can't believe it it's, you know they kick us out of the ring they're like go get dressed go talk to there's like uh prop people and they give us the little sashes that we're wearing some people are wearing like ridiculous like hats or whatever and sure enough, you know, time goes and we're we're part of the second hour, like right in the beginning of the second hour I believe, and like um they you know, they come grab us and it's like, Hey, it's time and I am like, No way. Like this is insane. And they we like line up in Gorilla and then here comes Kurt Angle dressed in the conquistador thing right. and he's the first one. He's like leading the charge and I'm right behind him and he looks at me and he was like, I have no idea what's going on and <laughs> Um and I'm just like, and he just kind of makes a joke or whatever, and then uh we go, we all walk out on commercial, and uh the lights are down, you can't really see anything, but I mean you can, but it's just dark, mm-hmm. and then we're all standing in the ring, and it's the same thing, we have like a half horseshoe, and it's like me and Kurt Angle were standing right next to each other, and i he just must have seen it like but I'm just like as soon as the lights come back on, I'm like looking all over the place, and he was just like. Take it all in because it's gonna be over before you know it, and I'm just like, oh, God. like I'm just trying, like and, like I'm just trying to look out. I'm just like looking in the crowd. I'm like trying to like, you know, and even though I know that no one's there, I'm like trying to find people that I know, like you know, like just because I'm just so excited. And then sure enough, here comes Baron Corbin. We're out there for his entrance, you know. And then they do the introduction for everybody, and then it's over before you know it. Right. And I'm in the back, and I just can't believe it.
0: It's so awesome, man, and it really couldn't happen to a better guy. I mean, I you, appreciate you really have paid your dues along the way. So for that opportunity to happen is, you know, it, it just goes to show that if, if you're willing to work for something, you can achieve those dreams, right? Um, Man, Aaron, I could sit here for hours and talk about the wrestling part, but I kind of want to make a transition here if you don't mind. I kind of want to talk about, um, something even more important than being on Monday Night Raw and, and all the accolades that you've had in, in the ring your role as husband and father and um, anybody that follows Aaron for you know that knows you you know you you're married to your lovely wife Tiffany and you guys have two kids yes uh, your daughter Bailey and your son Wyatt now um, last year amongst all of the other nonsense that we were dealing with when in terms of a pandemic and and everything else you as a parent you and Tiffany both as parents receive news that every parent um dreads and that's anything wrong with one of your babies uh for you and Tiffany and, and your whole family I, I'm, yeah, I i understand it's you know it's across the board right um but uh, your son, the younger of the two, mm-hmm. was, uh, they found a brain tumor. And kind of talk me through what, what led up to you guys having to take him in to get checked out. Uh, what, what, how did that whole thing un- unfold? So
1: it kind of starts, well, the brain tumor part doesn't start, but we'll just kind of rewind just a little bit, and I'll kind of recap the year that we were having. Um, at this point, like me and my wife had separated for a while, um, and around this time, uh, my, my dad, who I didn't really know that well, but he was like, s- kind of since like my daughter had been born, he was making an effort to be in our lives. Um, but just for not necessarily no reason, but just for whatever reason, like we never connected on that level of being like father son. Like I, you know, he was definitely the grand dad to my kids, but, um, even though I called him dad. He was never, like, the father figure to me. Um, he'd, he had, had, like, a heart attack and then basically became, like, a, a vegetable mm. for a time. Um, and then he passed away right around Easter. And then, uh, so, of 2019. And then maybe two weeks after that, my grandma has a brain aneurysm. Uh, and they say probably because of stress. It puts her into the hospital and essentially they said hey she can't we can't take leave go send her home unless someone's gonna be there to take care of her so then at that time I was like okay well I'll move in I like I always think like hey and we talked about it a couple times is that um my grandma's the one who took care of us so she was like, like my mom is my mom but she was like the parental figure sure for our whole life and I was like well I'll definitely move in. no one else is gonna do it and I'll definitely do it and I'm, I've always been like the kind of you know, fly by the seat of my pants type guy. And I was like, okay, well, I'll move in. So we left our house. We left. I left my job. I left everything and moved in with her. And then six months after I'd moved in, probably a little bit less than that, she passed away a couple of days after Christmas of 2019. Then five months later is when he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it, this was like, everything sucked. So, like, the whole, like, come, like, in this time, my life is kind of just, again, it's falling apart. Like, I'm, trying to be strong i'm pretending to be strong and i'm trying to put this like facade on that i am strong enough to deal with all this stuff but i wasn't like emotionally like actually processing anything that was happening um from my dad passing away all the way to my my grandma was bad for me that was really really hard it was hard to live with her and take care of her but it was even harder when she died um but for this it just didn't make sense because the when they tell us he had a brain tumor they're telling us that he could die at any moment they like the the doctor tell like told uh my wife um that if he passes out on the way to the hospital take him to any er it doesn't matter we're going to the children's hospital so like an hour away but she's saying stuff like that to us and we don't like he's fine like he's like the day before we were riding bikes we were jumping on the trampoline we're playing with water balloons like none of this made sense but the way they're talking about it, it's like like he's right knocking on death's door. And um, kind of the lead up to it was just like, it was some it, like, it was nothing. Like it was like every, you know, it just started to get nice outside. Like we said, we, you know, we were outside playing you know, sports, baseball, you know, playing football, just running around the yard with the dogs. And uh, a couple of these times, he kind of said he had a headache and he would throw up. And we always just kind of like, oh, well, maybe he's hot. Maybe sure. it's this. Maybe it's that. Maybe he ate something crazy because he's a kid and he's just, you know, shoveling candy and stuff down his mouth. So we never really thought, hey, this is something serious until it happened like two times in a row. Like, so it was like, like, they're jumping on the trampoline. So the day before, they're jumping on the trampoline. He gets out and he's just like, my head hurts, my head hurts, my head hurts. And he's just like, um, it's not like it, this time it doesn't seem normal. Like, it doesn't seem like, oh, because usually they just like, hey, my head hurts. Like, and, it would just, and he would be normally saying it, like, hey, like, I, hey my head hurts. This time, he's like, you could tell he's like in pain. Mm-hmm. And then he would throw up, and he'd be like, oh, I'm good. Like, and he would go back to whatever he was doing. We were like, man, that's, it just seems like, oh, his stomach must have been upset or something. But then he, he does it. He lays down for a minute while we're like inside kind of cooling off. And then while he's laying down, he does it again. And then that's when I called uh, my wife, and I was just like, hey, we got to do something. She calls, they get him in the next day, and she takes him, and me and my daughter are sitting at home, and I get the call, and she is hysterical on the phone, and she tells me. And I just, like, I'm just like, no way. Like, no, like, and I know, obviously, this is not something that you would ever joke about, but it just seemed like it had to be a joke. Sure. And I was like, I don't understand how this could be a thing. Like, he's fine. Like, he's a normal kid, and now they're talking about how he could just, lay down and die at any moment um we i call my brother i call a couple of people and i'm just like hey like well i have to go to the hospital he has a brain tumor and everyone's coming over and they're flipping out and you know i'm trying to just be calm but i'm just bawling my eyes out and um trying to like let bailey know what's going on as well It's like you know she's although she's now she's hysterically crying too she doesn't understand like the severity i don't even think i understood the severity of it sure um we get him to the hospital, and immediately they want to put, like, a shunt in because where his tumor is, which is larger than a golf ball, it's blocking the drain air, like the part of your brain that would let it drain out fluid, like, through your spinal cord and stuff like that. Um, and that's where the pressure was coming from. It was holding that pressure. Um, and then him, like, heaving and throwing up would create, like, a release just because of the stress of him doing that. And uh, he... He, they, but they put a shunt in that day and they're just like um, this is going to you know drain it out and everything you know everything's gonna be fine for now he'll be stable so we can set up a day to do um do the surgery and essentially they're just like hey everything's gonna be fine like he's you know they're not saying like hey this is 100 percent,' but they were just like uh some kids wake up from surgery and they're perfectly normal like they're ready to go home type stuff yeah. and um he has a surgery and me and Tiffany walk into the um, the room to see him and they're expecting him to wake up. So they you know, he should just be waking up out of anesthesia on from the anesthesia and he's not. And You know he's having like some sort. You know he's having like muscle movements and stuff like that, where he's just kind of like twitching and stuff. And the nurse is like, "Yeah, he should be waking up any moment." And this kind of happens for like twenty minutes, and then we start seeing like all of his stats and stuff start like just dropping and dropping and dropping to the point where we like we're like we're freaking out. And they and this is this was the worst part. I mean the whole thing sucks, but this is like the bad part. Is they like they they put us into like a private room, like a private waiting room, and we have no clue what's happening, but we're like, there's no way that if, if it was fine, we'd just go back to the waiting room. We've been there for eight hours. Why wouldn't they send us back there? And now we're in this, this private room with like, we're like behind like a locked door and we have no idea what the hell is going on. And hours, like, you know, an hour passes or something like that. And they come back and they're like, uh, he's intubated, you know, he's not breathing on his own. Uh, and then from there, he's basically in a coma for what seems like forever, but like, a couple like a, at least a month before I would say two months before he could they tried to take the um, take him off the ventilator twice and both times he just didn't breathe and they had to re put it back in multiple times and then uh one day they just you know for you know just whatever reason his they took it out and he was and they weren't the, the time that they the last time they took him off the ventilator was to do um some sort of imaging and but they expected to have to put it back in, but they just needed these pictures to see if there was any damage to like to his uh, to his throat that, that would make make him not be breathing on his own. And they take it out, expecting to have to put it like right back on. And they take it out, and he just is breathing on his own. But even from then, he's like not awake. Like he's just like a zombie. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like just like staring straight forward. Not you, there's no interaction. No like you know blink if you can hear us no show me fingers no nothing he's just there and he's just just like I said, like, a, like a vegetable like um and that happens for like another couple weeks and then slowly he starts kind of coming back to and um and at this point he's you know 25 26 pounds or something like that he's just and he's a tall kid and he's just a skeleton of the Wyatt that we took to the hospital and um, from there he starts doing PT still not talking um, PT OT and they're trying to get him to you know with speech therapy and stuff while he's in the hospital and then in October so five months after after being in the hospital for five months um, we finally get to bring him home and even then he's not able to hardly talk um, And he's not able, like, he can walk if you're, like, holding him, but he can't walk for more than a couple steps. Um, He's basically just, like, um, he has, like, no muscle, no nothing, and he's just healthy enough to not be in the hospital anymore. And then from there, fast forward a year, um, you know, we were talking about off-air. Now he's, you know, he's still not back to normal. Uh, There's a lot of things he still has to do and a lot of things he's going to have to go through, but... um, he's running around and climbing and jumping and he still has some issues with his like equilibrium and stuff like that but um you know fast forward to a year basically to the day he's he's running around being crazy and um kind of back to exactly what you would expect a seven-year-old boy to be like
0: brother like i i i kept tabs on what was happening just based solely on what you and tiffany were putting out on facebook i had reached out to you a couple times just to let you know if you need anything you let me know Mm -hmm. i did not as you're laying this out man my my heart is sinking further and further down because our kids are are the same age you know um my my son and your daughter are very close in age your son and my daughter are very close in age and I'm and I can't imagine what kind of mental toll that that has taken on you and before you get to that part you're you're laying out all the you know you've lost your dad you lost your grandma you lost your mom when you were younger right yeah yeah because I remember when all that on when all that on, unfolded what I can tell you Aaron and you know I I'm sure Tiffany too, along with your whole family, is. I gotta believe that something like this. And correct me, you know, if, if I'm wrong, but this has made you a stronger family from the inside out, right?
1: Yeah, definitely, because you know, like as I was talking about with when I was laying everything out earlier, like at, not at this time, me and Tiffany were back together by this point, but uh, Tiffany and I had separated. and We weren't together for basically a year, and when I started kind of going through all this stuff, that's when, like, me mentally, I was, like, you know, I came just came home from the Army. I'm supposed to be this, like, I'm supposed to be a leader. I'm supposed to be strong. I'm supposed to be tough. And I'm trying to pursue this wrestling career and be a dad and work, like, a normal job. And I was working, like, 12 hours a day, third shift. And then I would get the kids when Tiffany went to work. So Tiffany would, you know, she'd drop them off to me. And then I would have two three hours of sleep. And... I would just try to be with my kids as much as possible. Like, that's all I ever, like, other than wrestling, there's nothing that's ever I care about. And it's, like, I know part of it is just because you you love your kids no matter what. That's You're supposed to. Right. But my dad was so awful that, like, I never wanted my kids. And that was, like, a fear that I had when I was, like, younger, too. I was, like, what if I don't care about my kids? Like, what if I don't love them? Like... Um, and you know, and I think everyone says it when they're younger, like kids, kids, but they're like, I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have kids. Um, but that was something that went through my head was like, what if I just don't care? Like, what if they just don't like, what if I don't have that thing in me that makes me connect to them the way that you're supposed to connect to your kids? And then when my daughter was born, uh, I found that to be, you
0: know, not true.
1: Very untrue. Yeah. And um, but they're the, they're everything to me and they're the only thing that kind of kept me from falling apart into nothingness and to just a pile of dust when all this stuff was happening, because all I wanted to do was just be with them and make them happy while I could be around them. And, um, and I would have them the majority of the day, basically the entire, from sun up to sun down until I'd go back to work, we'd be together. And, but that caused me to sleep two, three hours a day and, um, and then just, you know, be hopped up on energy drinks or or Adderall or anything like that to stay in it and stay focused to to be with them but then also be part of then being at work and then being going in wrestling and then when my dad died it was like it was emotionally odd to me because when he when like leading up to this I felt like I didn't care like I was just like yeah whatever dude like he's just a guy but he's not you know like I said he was he knew my kids very well and he was great with them um but it's just like it's never like I was just like yeah yeah when he dies it's gonna be like yeah whatever but then when he died it was like oh this sucks and there were so many things that like I wish that we could have said to each other there's so many things I wish we could have done um that could you know maybe had made me feel different made me maybe be more emotionally open to him um and then right after that that's when my grandma got sick and that was like I was like I'm going to do whatever I can to be here for this person and spend the last couple years of her life um you know granted it was only six more months but I was just like I'm going to make sure that she knows and my kids know her for the awesome woman that she was granted she was not nearly the same person at this point because she was you know coming out of a um having a, a brain aneurysm but you know I wanted my kids to know like I wanted them to know her legacy like of who she made you know like Like she made us into the people we are, and I just wanted to make sure that like my kids knew like this is the person that like helped put us together and um and then saved us from you know the the abuse in our home and the, our dad you know beating the crap out of us and beating the crap out of her mom, and you know like uh she's the one who who instilled everything that was morally correct and like I wanted my kids to know that and I wanted her also to know that I'm here for her the way she was here for us and then when she passed away that was just like it was like losing my mom all over again um and then from there I was just like I was like man I have nothing left other than just I'm like a zombie and the only joy I have is being in the ring or being with my kids and then uh, by that time me and Tiffany were back together. Like by the time that my uh grandma had passed away we were back together. But then um and then Wyatt comes down with this and it's just like I don't know how much more I can take, like I don't know how much more I can do. Like this is this is all I got. Right. And uh being like kind of stuck in the hospital with Tiffany um, through all of this, uh, brought me and my daughter closer together. Granted we've always been super close, but um I was very, very adamant to make sure that she didn't feel left out or forgotten. Um, and I would, you know, like in the very, very beginning of being in the hospital, we were both there all the time, but um, as soon as he was stable, I would go home and make sure that me and Bailey went on little adventures and did fun stuff and um, and just knew that, you know, like I, You know, loved her obviously, but just like to know that, like you know, no matter what crazy stuff's going on in your life and how bad everything seems, there's always time to stop and smell the flowers and enjoy, like, some sort of aspect of your life, no matter how bad it seems. And then, uh, you know, when when Wyatt finally got to come home, we had this big party for him coming home, and um, and then we really started focusing on like, hey, we have to make this time count. So like. For Christmas, we did, like, every week we made sure we did something for Christmas. So we'd go see lights or, you know, for their birthdays, which is both in December, we went up north and rented a cabin and and went and seen the waterfalls and um, did all this crazy stuff. But then every week we did something, and we were just like, I want to make sure that if something like this is to happen, I don't have regrets of being, of not doing enough. And I think no matter what, you'd probably say, like, oh, I wish I would have did more, I wish I would have did more. Um, But I didn't want to have those regrets of, like, I was sitting there playing a video game when my, you know, son wanted to play with Legos or some, you know, nonsense like that. And I just was like, I want to make sure that if something is to happen to them again somehow, if that's, you know, um, if something is to happen to him, he knew that, you know, I loved him with all my heart. But also if something happens to me, like, I want them to know, like, I did everything that I could to try to make them happy and be there for them and be, like, the the father that I never had, but also be someone that they can depend on for any situation that they ever get in and know that, like, they are my entire life.
0: Man, this is as personal of a conversation that I've ever had on doing... Doing this project, not just here on ONTV, but the podcast or anything. Joe, I know we're running a little, a, a little bit over. Um, if what I, what I want to do, I want to take a quick break, and um, when we come back, I want to give my my final thoughts. So, so so stick with us. More of Klaus to the heart live on ONTV is right after this. <laughs>
1: breaker one nine breaker one nine you got your ears on put the hammer down and come out to orion township's annual big rig gig on friday august sixth from five to nine p m at friendship park fill up on go-go juice load up the family and come do some rubber necking as you check out dozens of trucks tractors diggers dozers bucket trucks back loaders and emergency vehicles of all shapes and sizes you might even see Smokey Bear and his bubblegum machine. Come early, stay late, and don't forget the Kodak camera. For more information, visit 10 Tenfold good, buddy, and keep the shiny side up and the rubber side down, and I'm gone. ¶¶ ONTV invites you to take part in our 10 week video production class. The class meets on Monday nights from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. and offers instruction on studio production, field production, and non linear editing. Upon completion of the class, you get access to ONTV's facilities and equipment to produce your own program or short film. The cost is $30 for Lake Orion residents, $60 for non residents. For more information, give ONTV a call at 248 393 1060
0: or visit orionontv.org today. And welcome back to Klaus to the Heart Live on ONTV. We certainly appreciate you tuning in tonight, and um, I'm with Aaron Richard, who, who just shared... Just an incredible story, man. I mean, I knew, I, I knew what I guess, what we can call the bullet points, right? But my goodness, as, as you laid all this out here tonight, I just, number one, I have I have always had a great appreciation for you, okay? And, and or, ordinarily, at this point of the ON TV show, I would have my final thoughts. Um, and I had something in mind that I was going to lay out here, but after listening to what you've laid out here tonight, I'm totally going, I I mean, off script, I don't have a script, but I had an, an idea of what I wanted to say, but, um, your story brother is one that, uh. I've talked to a lot of people since I've done done this show, I've done the podcast, I've done YouTube. I've never been more emotionally invested in somebody else's story as I have with yours. And there's a lot more meat on the bone here, right? Because I mean, we're just kind of scratching the the surface. So I would like to bring you back here.
1: I'd mm-hmm. you know, love when, to come back
0: when our schedules meet up here. Um, but in closing this week's episode, here's what I would like to say. And this a lot of this will stem based on the conversation I just had with Aaron here. I one of my models in life is you have to maximize your minutes. And that's not, it's not a cliche. And if anything in this, in this past year with the pandemic and, and all of the craziness that went along with that, that was on full display. A lot of us lost loved ones. A lot of us lost friends. Either we, we lost contact with them or they passed away or whatever the case may be. Aaron's story is an example to where you have to maximize your minutes because there is no promise for tomorrow. I've talked about it several times on uh, uh, across my platforms, but his story is one that really hammers that home, and we get one shot at this thing called life. And it's easy to get wrapped up in the hustle and bustle of life to the point to where everything else just kind of goes to the wayside because we are so zero-focused on one aspect of life. When, in turn, our lives are across the board. We have a lot of different responsibilities. We have a lot of people that we have to kind of cater to, for the lack of better term. But at the end of the day, what comes down, what is most important is your heart. And who you are fundamentally as a person, and while Aaron's childhood may not have been one that is one that is written in in your classic, you know, you know, your books, your fairy tales, or anything like this, it has shaped him to, to the person and the man, and more importantly, the father that he is here and now. I take great pride in 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 the fact that. My wrestling company, and maybe me on a a small level, played a very small part in his development as a performer, as a professional, but more importantly as a man. Because we all have journeys, we all have roads, we all come across crossroads in our lives, and we all... Have a choice from time to time as to what road we're going to take. It would have been very easy for Aaron to go down the path that was familiar to him. One that lacked love and attention and compassion. He didn't go that route. He went the the other way. And that was on full display here tonight. Guys like Aaron Richard, the man, not, not the wrestler, the man himself, is an epitome of what can be achieved if you set out on a goal and you are willing to put in whatever sacrifices that is. A lot of us can learn a lesson or two from him. A lot of you who may not be as involved in your kids' lives or think that you may not matter in your, in your kids' lives, if you are having an, an estranged relationship There is not a more perfect time to to try to mend those fences than the here and now, because our tomorrows are never guaranteed. So what I would say to you this week, my challenge to all of you, is this, if there is somebody in your life that you care about, that you may be at odds with on any level, pick up a telephone and start to mend them fences. Send a quick text message, some sort of communication that lets that person know that they are on your mind. And if there is an issue, you want to try to take the first step into mending those fences. It may not happen overnight, but if it's something that you both are willing to work towards, you can mend those fences because as we all know, time can and often oftentimes does heal all wounds regardless of how deep they are i thank you so much for taking time out of your night to give this show a watch aaron we're going to you know we're going to have, have you back on brother and i'm very much lo- looking forward to that
1: me as well
0: for the rest of you i want to thank uh, all the great staff here at ON TV and thank you for all watching be awesome to yourselves and to each other. We'll see you next time right here on Klaus of the Heart Live on Owen TV.